So I mentioned earlier, we're looking at the book of Philippians. The PowerPoint's going to come up in just a moment's time. If you attended Sunday school or vacation Bible school as a child, you probably remember the story of Paul and Silas. This morning we read the story of Lydia. If we were to go a little bit further in the book of Acts, we would come across another story that took place at Philippi. And that's the story of Paul and Silas in prison. You might remember that story. Paul and Silas, they were beaten with rods and then they were thrown in prison because they freed a young girl who is demon-possessed. They freed her of that demon. And while they were in prison, it was getting close to midnight. They were singing songs, it tells us. They were praising Jesus. And at midnight, there was an earthquake. The doors opened. The chains fell off of the ankles, not just of Paul and Silas, but of all the prisoners. The doors of the prison opened up. The jailer is ready to kill himself because he will be held accountable for any prisoner that escapes. Paul shouts out and says, hey, it's all okay. Everyone is here. And then it tells us that the jailer asks, how can I be saved? The songs that Paul and Silas were singing, the words must have touched the jailer and then the miracle brought him to the place where he wanted to accept Jesus. The church at Philippi was birthed out of prison and joy. The book of Philippi really would be from prison to prison. It starts with Paul and Silas in prison, we could say. And when Paul writes this book to the Philippians, to Philippi, this book of, he is in prison. So from prison to prison, from the prison in Rome to remembering how the church at Philippi started. It was on the second missionary journey that Paul, Silas, Luke and Timothy go to Philippi. In a dream, they're called to Macedonia. Philippi is in Macedonia. Today, that doesn't mean anything to us, but this will. Philippi is in northern Greece. That's where Philippi is. And so, they were called. They were called to Philippi. Again, a reminder, the first convert was Lydia, a seller of purple cloth. The church was birthed, small, but they continued to meet. And I would imagine eventually they met in Lydia's house because right away we see hospitality there. Lydia invites Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy to her house. Slowly the church grows, but it really takes off, I believe, when the jailer accepts Christ. 
just to, for us to realize the context of Philippi, because, you know, I think of our context here in Canada. Some of us can remember back when we would say Canada was a Christian nation. We could remember back when, when uh, you know, prayer in school took place. When Christmas carols were real Christmas carols. When nativity scenes were seen all over the place. When school programs had the Christmas story. Some of us remember those days. And today, we live in a very secular world where anything goes. Where the legalization of drugs is, you know, we already have marijuana and there's discussion of others. Where we have marriages and everything just in turmoil. The city of Philippi. There's a demon-possessed girl who basically, we could say, tells futures and things like that. She's running behind Paul and Silas. She's declaring that they are servants of Jesus. Finally, Paul gets so upset. Oh, I should add, by the way, that she does this so that, like, to earn money for her masters. So there are people that are using and abusing her. She's making money through her demon possession. Paul finally gets upset, turns around, and declares freedom for her. Paul and Silas, they are arrested because they set this young girl free. They are arrested because these men can't make money from her anymore. They lost their bread and butter through the abuse of a human being. That gives you the picture of Philippi. And the church is birthed in this place. Paul writes this letter to this church, and it might be about 10 years since he was there, like time has gone by, Paul is now in Rome in prison. When I think of being in prison, in prison in Philippi or prison in Rome, I don't think that's a place where joy would, would normally resonate, you know. I think that if you were in prison, joy would be one of the Emotions that just wouldn't really exist. But joy was there and is there for Paul and Silas because Jesus is there. The major theme in this, in this letter is the theme of joy, we could say. Living the Christian life through the lens of joy. Paul writes this letter to the church and there's, it's like no issues, we could say. When we look at other letters that Paul writes, we find that he is always addressing issues. But in this letter, he's not addressing issues. Oh, there's a lot of theology in this letter. There's a lot of encouragement in this letter. There's a lot of discipleship 
in this letter. But it's written with joy in mind. At least a dozen times the word joy or rejoice appears in this letter. Jesus is mentioned over 40 times in this letter. The first 11 verses of this letter basically encourage and ought to encourage us to have confidence. Be confident in who you are in Christ. Be confident. The letter, you've got your Bibles open, you can see that. The letter begins with the sender's name. That's how it begins. And then greetings. You know, a little different than our emails. You know, uh, well, we put our names at the end of the emails. But then I'm going to say, as much as I say, a little different than our emails. Not quite, though. Not really. Because when we get an email in our inbox, we know who it's from, right? So, so there is a similarity after all. This letter begins with Paul declaring that he is the author. That's how it begins. When we look at our inbox, we see who the email is from. And in fact, we see the subject line before we need to click to open. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I see who the email is from, you know, you just hit the delete. I see this. Yeah, you know. And so we just clean up our inboxes that way, don't we? Yeah. Well, I would imagine when the church received the scroll from Epaphras and they rolled open that edge... And the first thing they saw was Paul's name. I'm thinking that they got excited. They hadn't heard from him for a while. So I imagine that the church was excited that they had a letter from Paul. And there they saw their greeting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Ah. Oh. God is still using them. I wonder what they have to say. And so these first sentences of the letter move from the sender to the recipients. They move from Paul and Timothy to the church at Philippi. And so we read the words here, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. The Christians, Paul calls the believers in Philippi, and I believe the same is for us today. He calls them in three different ways. He puts three different titles to them. He defines them in three different ways. 
The first is as servants. Servants of Christ Jesus. With Paul and Timothy, you'll see that they're together. You and I are servants of Christ Jesus. When we accept Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, yes, we become children of God, but we are servants of Christ Jesus. Our purpose is to serve Christ here on this earth. To declare the gospel. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Now when you think of servants, you're thinking of something else maybe. But we're ambassadors. We're saints. That's what he says. Holy people. We're saints. Did you ever think of yourself as a saint? I see some of you kind of nodding a little bit, you know, sideways type of thing. You know, a saint? Oh, anything but a saint. No, you are a saint. Because you've accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, His righteousness covers you. And you are a child of the King. You're a saint. You're sanctified, you're set apart for his honor and for his glory. And then we are receivers of grace and peace. So you're servants, you're saints, and you're receivers of grace, that which you do not deserve, and a peace that passes all understanding. Boy, we're not even past the intro of this letter. And like, there's so much here. Have you ever thought of yourself in those three ways? And if you would embrace that's who you are, what difference would that make after the service? What difference would that make on Monday? What difference would that make in your workplace? What difference would that make in your home? Think about that for a moment. Paul isn't scolding us. God isn't scolding us. He's telling us who we are. A reminder. Wow. This is what happens when we make a decision to follow Jesus, when we're fully devoted followers of Jesus. Paul, after he greets them, after he, he tells them who they are in Christ, this, this powerful reminder, he moves down memory lane. And when he moves down memory lane with joy and thanksgiving, we see that in the next number of verses. His relationship with the church is one of past, present, and it will be future. He talks about being in partnership with the church. We see that in verses 4 and 5. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We don't see it right away, but if we look a little closer, 
we'll realize that Paul is saying there's a three-way partnership here. There's a partnership between the church at Philippi and Paul. There's a partnership going the other direction. That's two. The third partnership is with Jesus. That's three. It's a three-way partnership that exists. You know, when I, when I think of this verse and I was studying this verse and looking at this verse and then I thought, you know what? We've got some three-way partnerships. We do. Bear and Vanessa Yarborough. They came to us here at Westgate Alliance Church as youth pastor. They came with the intentions to go out. We partnered with them. They went out to what? Proclaim the gospel, to plant churches for Jesus. Jonathan and Claudia Valdez. You know, when I think of them, how did that partnership begin? That partnership began when we sent a team to Mexico City to scout out the possibilities of working with someone, the possibilities of forming a partnership in planting a church. Jonathan and Claudia Valdez, they were part of the Anticipon Church. And they felt God's call on their life to plant a church. Our team that was there connected with Jonathan and Claudia. And then a three-way partnership formed. A partnership between Jonathan and Claudia. A partnership between us and a partnership with Jesus. A three-way partnership. And today, we're part of that partnership. I think of Brad and Jackie up in Orviat. Another three-way partnership. A partnership that started in the past, that is in the present, and will continue to the future. I have to ask the question, what's the glue in these partnerships? The glue in the partnership or the relationships was prayer. You see, because Paul was now in Rome, the church is still in Philippi, and Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. What keeps this partnership going? What's the glue that draws it together? The glue is prayer. It's prayer. And what happened through this partnership? Joy. Joy is manifested because there is an eternal purpose. And that eternal purpose is slowly being accomplished. I would say the best fellowship, the best partnerships that occur are those that have a purpose. When there's a purpose. Just think back for a moment. If you are working with someone in trying to reach a goal, aren't those great partnerships? 
Oh, they could be as simple as planning holidays. If you're planning holidays with your kids or with someone else, there's a purpose. And that brings that friendship together. And then when it materializes, it's even stronger and better. Paul tells us what he was praying for. So when I say prayer, not just any prayer, this prayer that Paul prays for this partnership is really, really important. And I think it's a prayer that you and I could pray. I think it's a prayer that we should be praying in reference to our partnerships. Maybe we should even expand that to anyone that we know. We find that prayer in verses 9 to 11. Paul says, and this is my prayer. Okay, so it's just not some random prayer. I wonder if Paul wrote this out. Well, he did write it out here, right? But I wonder if he had it, you know, set aside somewhere. It reminds me of when my dad just, uh, when my dad passed away, and it was a little bit before that already. Um, my mom, my dad was uh, in that area of memory loss, and he was struggling greatly. He knew that his memory was, was eroding and what my mom did was she put down all of our names on a piece of paper so that my dad could continue to pray for us as family members. And so that's what he would do. Even though it's possible that he didn't remember, but the name was there and he prayed the name. I, I think of Paul. I wonder if he wrote this prayer out and as he prayed for the people of Philippi, and he tells us he prayed for them, I think he called each one by name, at least the ones that he knew, the ones that were there at the start. Maybe he heard of others accepting Christ along the way. Philippians 1, 9 to 11, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Two big requests sit in this prayer. Two big requests. And he pushes those requests out a little bit. He flushes them out a little bit. Two big requests. Request number one, that love may abound. This word abound really is kind of overflowing, that it would grow. Abound more and more, it says. And that's in the Greek emphasizing the growth more and more. That it would be a continuous kind of growth. Something really interesting here. The word love has no article. Okay? So in other words, when we come across other right times that Paul writes, he would say love God. Here it just says that love 
would abound. So there's no object for this love. Bible scholars believe that the reason why Paul wrote it this way is he wanted the love that was in the lives of the church in Philippi, he wanted that love to grow vertical and horizontal. He wanted it to grow in every way. So there's no object for the love, but that love would grow. Now, he puts some parameters, though, around it. He does. He says that love would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. And the word that Paul uses here for knowledge, when he uses this in other New Testament passages, it means knowledge of God. So he wants that the love that the church at Philippi has would grow and grow and grow, but that it would have the boundary of the knowledge of God on one side and the depth of insight on the other side, discernment on the other side. Think of it this way, a river. If a river doesn't have two banks, what happens to the river? Is it a river? It's not, right? So when you're reading this in the area of love, Paul is saying, I want one side to be knowledge of God. I want the other side to be discernment. And I want that love to grow in your lives. As a river grows deeper, more and more and more, a river flows faster and more water goes over it. The increasing of love. Why would be the next question. Paul, why do you want this? And I think we already know, but, but Paul is so good. God is so good, directs Paul in giving the answer so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Okay? So that when we live love, we know the best way to live that love. That you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. When Christ comes back, that this love that's growing would be a love that strengthens people in Christ. And, and then, of course, well, maybe I should just add, because we're still struggling with love, and I think we love in our culture, because in our culture, we think of love only as an emotion. If it feels good, you know, that type of stuff. But that's not love. 1 Corinthians 13 I, I love this. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 8, it tells us what love is. 
Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the love that we are to be, be living in daily life. And then the second request is that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So that love would grow and that the fruit of righteousness would grow. That's what he's asking for. Have you thought of praying like that for someone? I think we should start praying like that for those that we have seamless link agreements with. For Brad and Jackie for the Yarboroughs, for the Valdezes in Mexico City. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, I believe very much that Paul is talking about the fruit that's given to us in Galatians 5, to 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Even Jesus says in John chapter 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Bear much fruit. That's what the idea is. So that's the prayer. But I don't want to end here. I want to add a little bit more. There's something really important in these first 11 verses. And that should encourage us. Be confident in who you are in Christ. Be confident in Christ. For Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus this verse is a promise. It's a promise for us today. The good work that Jesus started, he will carry it on to completion. And Paul soaked this promise with prayer. That's what his prayer is about. He's soaking this promise. The past linked with the present will determine the future. The good work that Jesus started will be carried on to completion. The completion will take place at the return of Christ. You know, in our world, a good start doesn't mean a good end, right? How many people have started well just to finish somewhere else, to finish in the ditch, we could say? But that's not what God promises. That's not what Jesus promises. No, no. If we start with Jesus, he promises that he will bring it to completion at the return of Christ, at his return. This is important. Paul was so confident that the church at Philippi had a good start. They accepted Jesus. Jesus was going to guide and direct that church till he returns. You know, when I was a kid, many years ago, that was many years ago when I was a kid, yeah, I 
took this verse. There were other verses too, but this was one of the verses I took and wrote on a card. I had the verse memorized. I wrote it on a card. I put it in my wallet. And I carried it with me. For years, it was in my wallet. I carried it with me. It was memorized. I knew it. At times, I would still pull it out and I would look at it because it encouraged me. It told me that whatever I was going through, the darkest, the most difficult, that Jesus was at work and he would bring it to completion. It motivated me. It increased my trust in him. I hope this verse does that for you. The confidence I had in the promises of God would drive me forward to walk with him faithfully and trust him through all difficulties. And this promise is for us today. This promise is for you. This promise is for me. This promise is for us today. God will complete what he has started in your life. God won't let you go. God is determined. Sometimes, when we're living life, we struggle. I think we need to ask the question, God, what do you want me to do? You see, this verse doesn't mean that just somehow magically we're going to be transformed, okay? That's not what this verse means. This verse means that God is at work in us. He is changing our character. And for our character to change, we have to be a participant in it. After all, it's our character. And God is going to get your attention. If you aren't walking with him, if you're not in step with him, he made this promise to you. He said, I'm going to complete the work I started. So I'm going to get, in, get your attention. And I'm going to, I'm going to get your attention and I'm going to get you to walk in the right direction. I think sometimes, instead of complaining about the bad things that are happening, we've got to ask the question, is God trying to get our attention? And is God trying to get us to change something in our life? Because it's a partnership oh he's going to complete his work this is terrible to say you might end up kicking and screaming into heaven no that wouldn't be right would it that's because you want to be there but he's going to complete his work and he wants to complete it in your lifetime so that when he comes back then you are ready for his return and he can say to you, well 
done, my good and faithful servant. So I encourage you. I want to encourage you to grab a hold of that verse. And allow that verse to guide you through the tough times. He's made a promise. He will keep it. The worship team is on their way and they're going to lead us in singing all hail the power of Jesus' name. Beautiful, beautiful old hymn. We're going to close our service with that hymn. So the worship team is here and uh, they're going to lead us in closing.